This is the Detroit Sports Podcast Network. Today's episode of Two Bad Hombres is brought to you by The Athletic, which is premium coverage for passionate Detroit sports fans. Listeners of this podcast can save 30% off the first year of an annual subscription by going and visiting theathletic.com slash DSP. They're hiring great writers, and this fall they're going to cover Michigan and Michigan State football. So don't miss out. All the staff here, all the podcast hosts, we read The Athletic every single day. Be part of a growing network of smart, passionate Detroit sports fans. Go check out theathletic.com slash DSP. Subscribe and save 30% off. And we are still, still, still not tired on this week's episode of Too Bad Hombres. And I am your host, Vito Geronimo Chirko, along to my usual psychic and broadcast partner and fun. That is the Doc from Doc and Jack, John Charles Macaroon. John, how are you doing? Vito, welcome to the weekend. Always look forward to a podcast recording. The last few weeks have been awesome. Great in-studio guest. I'm greatly looking forward to this guest. Who do we got in studio this week, Vito? Well, back-to-back weeks of having a Michigan alum in studio. Now, Harper Woods Chandler Park Academy alum and University of Michigan alum, Michigan point guard great, Derek Walton Jr. Derek, how are you doing? I'm doing well, man. How are you doing? Great to have you on. And you start on the 2013-2014 Michigan team that went to the Elite Eight, the 2016-2017 Michigan squad that went to the Sweet 16. You had some great years, a great four-year run there at U of M, Derek, definitely. I, w- I definitely say so. I definitely say so. And to start off, how about playing for your dad? You played for him at Harper Woods Chandler Park Academy. What was it like playing for your pops? Uh, it was a blessing. It was like uh, playing, basically playing for my trainer and my dad at the same time. So I um, always had a great leash to go out and play, but I always had a lot of responsibility. So I think it was a good, a good balance of both. And he was a staff sergeant in the Army at one point. Stationed in Fort Benning, Georgia, then in Hawaii. So a military-based man. So I know he was tough on you at times. And it made you a tougher ball player, and you were known for being tough and hard-nosed. And really, I think you got the best out of your ability when you were at U of M, and you can credit your dad for that toughness, too. And, I mean, how much do you credit for your toughness? How much do you think it's because of your dad and your upbringing? Um, it's every bit of it. And I, you know, I always give him credit on that. I think the roots of what I am you know, was, was taught as a child just always carry with me. Like, it's just um, obviously his military background, but just overall his just mentality. It uh it rubbed off on me and then it, it still carries with me today. Like um a lot of stuff and, and a lot of the values that I have are because of him. Now I read that he would make you do push ups if you missed a single free throw. <laughs> yeah. Does that was, practice still carry on to this day? And and actually when did he make you start doing that when you missed a free throw? Um, I think I was punished really early. I was doing push ups if I double dribbled when I was little. Like if I double dribbled or traveled or I uh you know, I did something that wasn't in the rules, I always had punishment. But the free throw thing came about Seventh day grade, it was just uh, I started to get a lot better. Like uh, my game started to transform, so it was always on me to continue to push me. So it was another way to like you know I don't want to do push ups. I rather have points than push ups. So so it's made you a better free throw shooter over oh. the years by doing that too, huh? Oh yeah, hundred percent. I think I'm like I think I was around ninety percent my first year in the professional ranks and uh, like eighty six in college. So I think um, you know seeing him in the backdrop in the rim in college, I always knew if I would miss, he would definitely say something. So you definitely want to hear his mouth. 
So let's talk about Dorian Dawkins now, a buddy of yours that passed away in the summer of 09 at the tender age of 14. A guy that you played a lot of basketball with, I believe even AAU Mm -hmm. basketball with, and him passing away. How does his memory inspire you today, both on and off the basketball court? I I changed my my entire number, like a number I've always loved. I was a number five. I wore number five up until like uh, eighth grade, until until the the tragic event. And then um, I feel like at this point I was playing for an outside reason, outside of myself. I just felt like he was always going to do something great. So I feel like, um, you know, to continue to push, and then it always gave me extra motivation because I feel like I always had him with me. And you wore the jersey number number 10 oh, in his honor as well during your four years at U of M. Mm-hmm. What did it mean to you to be able to wear that jersey in his honor while you were at the University of Michigan? Uh, it meant everything just because I know, um, you know, our families were, were really close, and I stayed in touch with his families. So I, I, I pretty it was like a, a sentimental thing. Like, you know, I go to the free throw line or, or do something or, you know, I hear my number, and always it was always the first thing to come to mind. So why did you sign with Michigan? Uh, I think it was the greatest it was the greatest fit for me. Like, I, I think it was the greatest balance between academics and athletics. Um, overall, it was close to home. My mom always wanted to see me play in college. So I think I, I like, I lucked up in, in all honesty. It's just like the perfect fit. It laid out perfect for what I wanted to do. It, you know, lined me up to be an NBA player. It was just, it was everything I could ask for. And your first season at U of M, once again, was the 2013-2014 campaign. Coming off of a season, the season before that was a national title game appearance made by the Trey Burke-led Michigan Wolverines. How much pressure did you place upon yourself going into that freshman season for yourself when you know you were replacing the production of Trey Burke, you started there as a freshman, replacing his production, and trying just to replicate what he had done and what that Michigan squad had done only a season prior? I look forward to it. That's always who I've been. I've always invited a challenge and I've always tried to live up and then I'll do a challenge so um it gave me an extra chip it was a lot of I think being young like that and having to lead a a group of typically I mean quite frankly a a group of NBA players it was it was tough at times but the challenge was it just made me better overall I think my freshman year I was spoiled just because of uh just the caliber, caliber of guys I had around me but also in the sense of all the knowledge that they gave me so looking back at that freshman campaign how would you describe it now, what you endured, making it all the way to the Elite Eight as a freshman and losing to Kentucky there? I mean, how great of a season was that for you as a freshman? And I guess speaking of something that you already said, being spoiled kind of, having all that talent to work with as a freshman, and how it made you a better player over time too. To put it all in a couple sentences, I think overall it just made me, uh, it, it taught me how to pretty much work. It taught me how to work and how to be very efficient in my time. How to overall just uh, just how to like how to approach things. It, like a lot of the guys on that team had really like professional approaches, and uh, being a younger guy and also being a leader in in my own way, uh, it just let me. It, I took I took a lot of things from that team that still carry with me today. Just the way I approach things, the way I uh, you know prepare for a competition, or overall just how I prepare for a season. Now, did you feel the pressure though of replacing Trey Burke? I mean, you heard people saying this guy has to be the next Trey Burke, was going to be the next Trey Burke. How much did that affect you on a game-to-game basis, too? I, I think I, I, I struggled with it. I think at first it was kind of like I tried to um, I tried to be the perfect point guard. That's what I tried to be my first couple months, you know, within the season. Like, just trying to get out of the way of guys that I knew could make plays. Like, just hand the ball to guys. Like, I had Mitch, you know, I had Nick, I had Karras, I had Glenn. I had so many guys around me that can make plays that I think I just started to defer way too much. 
And then overall, the course of the season, the more I played my game, the more successful we got. So I think it was a balance between trying to be the perfect point guard and then just trying to be me. So I felt pressure at times. Like, of course, you know, as an 18-year-old, you would look on the Internet and you hear people talking or you see people talking. But, I mean, I think stuff like that, it has to happen for people to grow and and, and realize – um, you know, how to block out distractions. Well, how do you deal with all the negativity? I mean, on message boards, on Twitter. I mean, I see it. We see it ourselves. People getting at us. People will get at and say anything to you nowadays. They, they feel empowered, as you know, behind their mobile devices, mm-hmm. behind their laptops, desktops. How do you deal with all the negativity and kind of just remove that from your mind, too? I think the best way to put it for me is that um, I don't want to think of them as, a, you know, they're, I wouldn't say they're envious. I just think everybody's entitled to their own opinion. And then as much as they are entitled to that, it doesn't affect what I'm doing. So I think for for me, honestly, it keeps me balanced. And honestly, I, I need to see some negativity and I do, do need to see some positivity. But I think the negativity always would drive me. And it depends on how outrageous it is if I really care about it enough. Now, growing up playing basketball, tell us a little bit how you developed your love and passion. Obviously, you talked to Vito about your dad um, coaching you and things like that. How, what were your earliest memories of playing basketball, watching on television, developing the love for the game of basketball? I think everybody that plays basketball up until their, like, you know, early 20s just always remember playing outside as a kid. Like, there's no, there's no other way to describe it. Just having, your, like, your, your closest friends come over and, y'all, you know, you're just outside playing basketball and then... You know, you're with them all day, every day. You know, AAU's all year round when you're young. It's not like, you know, high school when you got a high school team and they go play you. Like, AAU, those guys become family. So, like, those are the most cherished moments I have. Like, just going outside, being with guys I'm with every single day, you know, touching lines with, sweating and fighting and, and scratching and clawing with. It's just the best moments I have. When did you know that basketball was the right sport for you, that it could take you to the levels that it has? <laughs> when I tried to play football. Then you knew you weren't good enough to play football, huh? Yeah, I played football for probably five days. Okay. What did you try playing? What position did you try playing? I wanted to play running back, but I came in halfway through the season, and, you know, obviously the team was already set in stone. And they just, I mean, I I play like defensive end. So after that point, I'm like, man, I I need to go back to what I'm good (laughs) to. Basketball is right for me, not football, not anything else. I think you made the right decision. And after your freshman season at Michigan, you battled the injury bug a bit. Oh, yeah. How did that affect you and your mindset, and how tough was it for you to get past all of that and to, you know, get to your senior season and have the great senior campaign that you did? It's still those, those sophomore and junior days are just days where you just uh, – it, it makes me appreciate basketball. It made me appreciate basketball so much more. Uh, it just was days where I – it was days where I couldn't walk. Like, it was It was one of the most – it wasn't – I wouldn't say dark, but it was. I would say it was depressing just because it was something I was – always accustomed to doing like it's no matter what else is going on I know he's had basketball and that was kind of taken away from me so uh, it just made me appreciate the game a lot more and then you know when my time was when I was back healthy I was I had a mental clock against you know making up for all the lost time I you know I lost it was a mental grind and mentally taxing and for us as non-athletes I mean look at us you know we're not athletes obviously <laughs> but for you guys as athletes I mean how tough is that I mean in a mental grind as you're going through an injury you have the procedure then you have the rehab all the recovery how is that, and how big of a mental grind is that for you? It's, it's hard to put in words. Uh-huh. Like it's just each each day is its own own struggle. Each obstacle is its own struggle, and then I think the the people that come out of it the best are the people that can always uh, look day to day. So like I just try to approach each day and try to get the most out of each and every opportunity that was in front of me to rehab, and then overall, and you think about it like that. Um, 
you look at it overall, you just look back like, wow. I mean, I'm, I'm probably ahead of schedule now. I was a lot ahead of a schedule just because I tried to focus on each and every day. And fast forward now to 2017 when you had that airplane you know, oh. accident at the Willow Run Airport. Mm. The airplane slid off the runway, and you were a part of that, had to deal with that incident. Now, how crazy of an experience was that for you and your teammates? I, I can honestly say there's no other way to describe it unless you were a part of it. Like, I'm pretty sure every person on that plane has, like, a different approach to getting on planes. Like, I still to this day, I can't. Like, if I, we get on a team plane, if I get on a commercial flight, I still can't fall asleep until we're completely in the air. Like, like both wheels are up. Wow. Then the wheels go under the plane, and then I feel like, you know, we finally up in the air. So, like, that experience was crazy because it was just, it was so unexpected. It was one of the most unexpected things ever. And I feel like in the moment it was happening, I was looking dead at one of my teammates, and he, like, he was like airborne, like I, he was like really, like he was in the air, like his feet were above the seats. Who was this, if you don't mind? Ibiwasa. Okay. Yeah, it was crazy. It was nuts. Like no. my computer flew, like my screen cracked, like it was just like chaos. It's just like someone like opened the door in the plane. Now, was- prior to the incident, were you a nervous flyer? Or were you a good flyer? Everything was pretty cool because for the most part, most flights are pretty routine. You know, you got to go through security, you get on, and so there's an expectation. You get the warnings, okay, put everything away, and then you go because this happened at takeoff. So if you can, set us what it was like when, uh, you know, you guys are taking off and all of a sudden something doesn't go right. What was your first indication something wasn't right? I think both of y'all can accredit this. So if you, if you fly for long enough, there's like a – it's just like a feeling. You gotta like a. You just feel when something's not right. Like mm-hmm. for a long time, I just felt like the runway was like ten miles. Like the like the runway felt so long, and I was just wondering like, at some point the plane, like the nose of the plane, has to lift up, and like it did, and then it came right back down, and I was like, yeah, something's not right. So I just, I think that's the point when I really started to panic. When like the plane never really got off the ground. It was like we just kept, like I'm like after a while the one way is gone. You know, in like it's gonna end, and then there's grass, and then there's you know, you know, gates, and then all that other good stuff. But like, once we never took off, I I start to panic at that point. Do you still think about it to this day, and what could have been, how it could have been worse, how it could have been catastrophic too for you and your teammates? Um, yeah, but I'm a big believer in the secret. I believe your mind is is, is very powerful, so I I try not to think about it. But I do have a scar that I always look to every time I get. Really, so you have a yeah, scar from yeah, it too? Yeah, it was crazy. I had to get stitches. They told me I couldn't play. Yeah, and then crazy. you played, yeah. and you you balled out. Oh, the yeah. Big Ten tournament, you won it, beat Wisconsin. You made the Sweet 16. So, I mean, you had a heck of a run. And how much do you think that plane accident, the incident, motivated you guys, inspired you and your teammates, and brought you guys together to be able to win that Big Ten tourney, but also to make that Sweet 16 run that you guys did? Yeah, I think it was it was huge. But uh, I always I, I told every everybody else, I think a lot of things was trending in the right way before that. And I think... That event itself just made everybody else just loose. It just made us just, I think everybody was out there. I think that's the funnest I've ever had playing basketball. Like, like five days, that was the funnest I've ever had playing basketball. I told my teammates that, and we all agree. It was the, the fun. It felt like the first time I picked up a ball again. And people remember playing in alternate uniforms. People remember the fact that you guys got there and gave you credit. What was it like trying to get on the next flight to the the tournament? Because everybody talked about it like, you know what, if it was me, I think I talked about it with a couple buddies. I said, look, you couldn't drag me on a plane. I don't care how I get there. I'm Ubering it. I'm taking 50 cars. I'm getting all my friends, you know, pitch in, drive me to where 
uh, we got to go. And I'm a nervous flyer as it is. So if something like that happens, I'm driving to where we got to go. I don't care if we're playing in California. I'm not getting on another plane. You guys showed courage and bravery to get on that next flight. How did you do it? I'm going to be honest with you. I was the, I was the coward of the group. I, I, it was it's crazy how all that stuff happens. Like when it happened, I was the first person to say, nah, I don't think we should go. And then once the meeting happened again, I was like, nah, I don't think we should go. But everybody else wanted to go. And um, I, obviously it was it was bigger than me. So, I mean, I sucked it up for those guys. But, like, I was, like, Heart pumping. I was hell-bent on not going. Like, hell-bent. Like, I called my mom. I told her I'm not coming. Um, Like, everybody that is in my immediate family circle, like, I told them I'm not going. And then the meeting that night was just, like, I had a good meeting with our – like our mental guy, like our one of our psychological guys at, at Michigan, Greg Harden. And um we just had a long talk about it and then I was still hellbent. Like it was no convincing me at that moment. Like I at least had to sleep on it. And then the next day the flight was so like it was just quiet. You know, like you know, just like when it's awkward in the room, it just sure. was like stupid quiet, like O D quiet to the point where like no one wanted to say anything until we landed in DC. By the way, this guy is also a psychologist. But and, and that's actually, why, and so. that's why I'm proud of you for talking about it and sharing it and things like that. What was Coach Beeline's involvement? What What did he say to you, or what did he say potentially to those that might have been a little bit uneasy? Because obviously, for him and seeing you know encompassing him being the leader of the team and things like that, that's got to be a delicate situation because you got the mind frame of where everybody was at. You still got to recover from something that was almost tragic, but then you still got business to handle. You still got to get on a plane to and from where you were going. What was his involvement and how much do you remember of that? I will agree. that I I will say this. His empathy for everybody's personal, like, uh, feelings was not, you can't, like, you can't fault him to that. Like, it was just, like, everybody understood that it was, like, a very, like, that's a moment that you will never forget. Um, But his message was also that, you know, the, you know, life is all about events, you know, and it's about how you respond to things. And his message was pretty much, uh, what are you going to do, you know, not fly for the rest of your life? I mean, and, and it made sense in a great, in, in grand scheme, it didn't make sense. It did, but at the time, of course, out of everybody. And me being a leader, it was kind of funny to think back. Like, I was one of the guys that was like, nah, there's no way I'm getting on that plane. And so then, how much how much did Coach Beeline, you know, keep you guys on track then through all that? He did a great job, man. I, I will take my hat off to that because – it's, it was so much more than just what happened on the plane. It was just who was on the plane. It was, you know, what was going on at the time. It just it was a lot like a lot of different factors where you could all like everybody that could have and would have, and if you had a reason to just give up on it, it would have been okay. It would have been understandable just because of the magnitude of what was going on. But the fact that everybody on that plane got back on the next plane. I think that showed a lot of resilience. And it's a testament to you guys as a team, as leaders and things like that to overcome. And and a message that I tell people that we spread throughout the podcast and my work as a psychologist is if you think about it philosophically and you go down that road, you can't have faith and worry at the same time. Theoretically, you can't. So when you start kicking into that worry gear, I say, look, flip it to the faith and say, look, whatever's going to happen, put it in the big man's hands and whatever happens, happens. And look, they survived it. Nothing happened that didn't what that wasn't supposed to happen. The crew survived it. Everybody survived, and uh, they were able to then t- 
take that and be resilient and accomplish something awesome that season. And, and it's a testament to the team and, and to Coach Beeline and the entire staff and to you, even though many people did talk about who wanted to stay on a plane, who wasn't, courage and things like that. Look, you can't determine what people's reaction is going to be. You know, it's just what it is. And, uh, and though the good thing is, is you, over, you overcame it. And that's what life is about is, hey, challenges in front of me. You, you, you face, you accept what you are feeling, and then you go, I'm going to take over and, and cope with it properly. And all credit to your, your guys and the staff there. Well, it's easy to preach it, though, right? To preach half-faith, don't worry about things the next time you get on an airplane. Yeah. But to actually practice it, right? Woo. And like you said, you guys were courageous then and resilient. You were a very resilient bunch. And I guess it uh, sparked you guys the rest of the way in the Big Ten tourney in the NCAA tournament. And having Coach Beeline, John Beeline, as your head man, I think really helped you out from afar from what I saw that year for you guys. And what was it like playing for him, by the way, at Michigan? It was, uh, I just, in every situation when I'm, I know I don't have all the answers. I know for a fact that I'm just going to try to be a sponge. It's just, there's no other reason for me to honestly, you know, fight back somebody who has something, some knowledge that I need or may need to know. So the whole time I just tried to be a sponge. I just, I think I learned so much on the court and off the court about like just, just little stuff that always would like just, that's very important in everyday life. So like, I think the best thing I would say about Coach Beeline overall, I think he's one of the best teachers. He's one of the best life coaches. In, in college basketball. So speaking of teaching, what did he teach you then? What are the most vital lessons that he taught you as a player but also as a man off the court? You know what, basketball is, is, is just like, it's parallel to life. It's just like a lot of the lessons that you learn in basketball really does transfer to life. Like just being on time to things, uh, being prepared for things, taking extra time to learn some things, If you may, even if you mastered it already. It's just, it just it's like really small things he taught me that like, I just don't think I would be the same person today. Did you think that Beeline would leave for the Pistons? Because there was that big rumor at one point <laughs> that he might leave for the Pistons head coaching vacancy. I don't know. I I mean, you know what's crazy? I saw him in the airport. I flew in from Miami, like, uh, it was a mid- midday flight, and he was leaving. And I just had saw on Twitter that he was going to the Pistons. Of course, me and his relationship never, you know, we don't talk about that type of stuff. But I had no worry for real. I think... I think college basketball needs him, honestly, because it's just, especially that program. Just, so how big of a loss would he be for that program then, if he ever left one day, or just when he decides to retire? Because I don't see him leaving Michigan. Uh-uh. And maybe he does, but I don't see him leaving Michigan at this point. I think his legacy is just, he, he's, got a, he's got one of the craziest, like one of the greatest legacies. I think, what is, I can't think, can't think of the football coach name, but he's like like a legend. I think he can be one of those guys, though, like. His legacy, like, on the court. Like a Bo Schembechler well, of basketball. Definitely, definitely. Bo Schembechler of basketball. No and it seems like Harbaugh, the football coach, obviously, at Michigan, gets all this respect, mad respect. But who's accomplished more? Hey, no bias here, I think, from you. But I think you can say it's beeline with the basketball program, at this point, at least. I love my school, man. I won't do that it's our, Okay, it's hard for you to do that, school, huh? Man. I love it. But, no, I just I – will, I will take this side of it. I think that he definitely has uh, – He's definitely solidified himself as one of the greatest coaches in college basketball. And I think the best way to put it is I respect this so much more because he does it the right way. Now, I got to ask you, because everybody's talked about it. It's starting to be revealed with great websites, great coverage of the program. People got a chance to see how Beeline kind of produced such great shooters. And everybody's talking about, holy cow, Michigan is so proficient at the three, similar to what's going on across the entire NBA, basketball. Michigan, the athletes there just have become amazing three-point shooters. You're seeing uh, efficiency out of, the, out of this world. 
you know, to the best of your ability. How would you describe what John Beeline does? Because everybody's talking about it. Everybody's kind of looking at it going, whoa, Michigan's become a three-point factory, and they are practicing it at a clip that's going, that's showing people, whoa, this is efficient, this is productive, this is the way you teach athletes to shoot properly and make it. You know, it's crazy. I, I think we live in a world where everybody tries to find a new gimmick, a new, like a new nuance to how to do something at a high level when it's really simple. It's just it's always like the the formula to being great at something is always gonna be simple. You just you just put the you just put the time in. I think shoot nonstop shoot what, those threes, but get behind the arc and just let it rip. You you can't replace repetition. Repetition is 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 the biggest thing in basketball. That's the best players are because they have the most repetition at something. But man, I remember in, in those days in Michigan we shot every day, like it was no it was the right way every way every day. Like, no ifs, ands, or buts. Now, shooting the three ball, though, a phase, is it? It's trendy right now. It's a way of doing things, especially in the NBA. Mm-hmm. But could it be a phase and a thing that maybe goes out of style eventually at some point? Because I know the Warriors have perfected it, mm-hmm. but they have great shooters, too. Not everybody has those great shooters. Right. Do you think that it could go by the wayside at one point, this three-point or kind of nothing style of doing things in the NBA? Um, I know the NBA is all predicated on high, the highest percentage shot. So I think the guys that always make the shots at the highest clip until that starts to change, then no. Like the the fact that the dudes from the Warriors can shoot like that makes everything else that much more difficult. Like mm-hmm. when you have to guard somebody at the point of attack that much like further from the basket, that makes everything harder. So I think as long as people can shoot the ball like this, then the demand for people who can shoot the ball like that will always be high. And so. now the big men can shoot the three ball too. I mean, look at Mo Wagner, right? Last year at Michigan, now at the Lakers has LeBron to dish it to him in the corner or up top. And I mean, how good of a pro is he going to be? Mo Wagner with the ability to shoot that three ball and in that Lakers system led by LeBron James. I think outside of his skill, I think what's going to always keep him um, above average is his fire, his fire for the game. Like it's at some point, everybody gets like, once you get into the elite of the elite, it's not really like X's and O's that really defines people. It's kind of like what's inside you and how well you can execute. And I think he already has one of the two, which is already the fire and the love. So, like, once you got that and the passion, a lot of the stuff that he already can do naturally with ability just enhances it just because he loves to do it. And a great coach that coached him at U of M, too, John Beeline, definitely oh, yeah. helps out as well. Definitely. What do you remember about your time? What will you remember the most 20 years from now about your time at Michigan? Without a doubt, those the the last three to four weeks of the season, that was the funnest. That was like the craziest. That's the craziest turn of events in like I can ever say I've been a part of. Like going from struggling in the middle of the Big Ten to being the best team in the Big Ten, and then going from uh maybe it's just a maybe it was just a phase, maybe just playing well to winning three straight games after that. It was just like I mean I don't think I'll ever forget that. So you went undrafted in the 2017 mm-hmm. NBA draft. You signed as an undrafted guy with the Miami Heat on yep. a two-way contract yeah. with the Heat and their G League team as well, the Sioux yeah. Falls Sky Force. So you played with both this past season. Mm-hmm. What kind of an experience was that for you playing with the Heat? A lot of similarities to Michigan. Just um, real, like, real culture-based. A lot about who you are as, with your character, who you are every, every day when no one's watching type of, type of feel. And then just um, a lot of learning, a lot of learning just – Knowing that I I have no doubt that I can play in that league for 10 to 12 years. But it's just about the small stuff that go into it. And I think them being the first team that I've ever, ever experienced with the NBA, I think they gave me the greatest like sense of like 
I would say the, the greatest confidence booster because I knew I can already play, but they gave me more tools that I think would, I, will, will obviously make me a better player down the road. How would you describe Eric Spolstra as a coach? Very, very uh, hard-nosed guy. I think he's a very upstanding guy, very hard-nosed and very like clean-cut, but a lot of similarities to Coach B, just does stuff the right way. Intense. Did you get the chance to pick the minds of Spolstra then and Pat Riley as well? I didn't. Man, you know when you see someone that you always hear about, uh-huh. it's like one of those like it's kind of like a like uh, that's like, Pat Riley of the Lakers. That's back in the day. Like this is NBA yeah. history. Yeah, Showtime yeah. Lakers, legendary so, figure. So you were yeah. on, and he was like the boss figure. Yeah, so it was kind of like I see him and I'll be like, uh, "What's up, coach?" <laughs> it wasn't really <laughs> like, like what like to a, say. He can just yeah. flash his rings, and then you're awe inspired, right? And yeah. you don't know what to say next, almost as well. Yeah. That's how I am when Vito walks in a room. I'm like, "Oh my god, what do I say to Vito?" I mean, look at a media <laughs> darling gets all the interviews. <laughs> One day when when Vito walks in a room, it's going to be just like that. That's what I want Vito to get to as well is to be like, "Look, I want when you walk into a room, people will be like." What do I say to this guy, Mr. Vito? <laughs> but on a serious note, thank you for that, by the way. Okay, complimentary gesture to me. I'll take that in stride. But Pat Riley, a guy like that, has an uncanny ability to find talent. Mm-hmm. So him picking you up as an undrafted free agent says mm-hmm. something about you and your caliber of ability, too, I would say. Yeah, I would agree. I think um, my agent in, in, in the Heat had a very, very, uh, I think we had a lot of mutual interest. And then, I've, I've, of course, I was you know, honored and blessed you know, to be granted the opportunity. But uh, again, I was, I was, I'm, and still am, are extremely thankful for the time. And then, um, yeah, like I said, just the Pat Riley thing. It was just like, it was kind of like a. Uh, I just felt like I wouldn't say I was intimidated, mm-hmm. but I was very careful what I said around him. Though he's still an imposing figure. Yeah, and you don't want to say the wrong thing to him. Yeah. Now, what did that experience teach you with the Heat? Having that opportunity last year, playing with the Heat a little bit, mm-hmm. and the Sioux Falls Sky Force in the mm-hmm. G League, what did that experience teach you and maybe you know, allow you to be a better player moving forward too? So many lessons. I think the best thing I could say out of this entire first year is that I just learned how to be a professional. Like I feel like I was already a professional coming into like, outside of college basketball just because of the way we ran things at Michigan. But this took it to another level. It just was it was full scale from day to night on how to continue to push forward, to continue to take steps forward instead of being stagnant and taken back. So I think things that I learned overall throughout this entire my entire first NBA season was uh I, I can't put it into words. I would just say I'm thankful. So John Derrick's a free agent, by the way. Mm-hmm. So it's time to break some news. All right, let's announce your decision now. <laughs> Now, who are you looking at? I mean, have you had some teams, you know, talk to you recently? Yeah. And you have intentions, I know, of playing this year. So how has that been going for you? Um, I'm starting to see the business side of things. Like, it's me. I know people talk about it. You know, everybody can talk about it and say, it's, you know, it's this, is that. But until you're involved in it, it's just like a whole different, like, a, it's a whole different look at things. But I, I think I, I should be very near to a decision very soon. Uh, free agency is moving way slower than it did last year. Um, but, I mean, I think at the end of the day, I think I'll be in a great spot. And then for a guy like me, man, I just – a dude like me don't need much. You just give me a small window to go out you there. You just want an me, opportunity man, again, right? And I'm, I'll be more than – And I want to talk yeah. to you about it, though, because I think it is very interesting because at, in a sporting world, we play for the love of the game. It's just, you know, a basketball, hooping, having fun, and things like that. Now you just said it. It's a business. There are investments made. There's things that are looked at. You're now seeing, you said, the business side of it. Do you like it or do you go, you know what? It's something that's there. I got to stick to what I know. 
what is it like to kind of look at it from that side of it going, you know what, it's a business, there's huge money generated, there's a lot of things outside of just stepping on a court, dribbling a basketball and taking it to the lane or shooting. Do you like the business side of the game, looking at it from that angle, or do you go, uh, not for me? I, I got so many different like viewpoints and stands on that. I think, I mean, at times I hate the business side, of course, because it's just not, it's not ever just, it's not ever just, I wouldn't say, but I mean, it's, I do do it for a living. I mean, it does, you know, it does pay the bills. It does, uh, it does keep my mom happy. That's all. I That's a good thing for. too, right? Yeah. But I mean, it's at times where it just doesn't make sense to me and I don't think it's supposed to, but it just. It's, it's, I just got a love-hate relationship with it. That's the best way I can put it. And free agency's been slow for you, you said, but also yeah. for Dwayne Wade, a big name like that, who's older now, not a superstar caliber player anymore. Mm-hmm. He's gotten a big three-year offer from a team in China, maybe playing in China. I mean, look at that, a guy like that who hasn't signed yet, who you would have thought by this point would have signed mm-hmm. as well. So we'll see what happens with you and your future. We wish you the best of luck with that. And how leery do you have to be as well of Twitter and what you post on there nowadays because we've seen some athletes in recent memory come under fire for tweets they tweeted out when they were 18 or 19. Some offensive, racist as well tweets. What do you think about that and just the importance of being leery? First and foremost, to answer that question, Derek, the importance of being leery of what you post on Twitter mm-hmm. and on social media. Um, my best point of, to, to I, I try to tell younger guys that are like, uh, they're up and coming, that, uh, Everything isn't for everybody. Like everything that you do, obviously, is is your personal business. But you don't post every single thing you do. That's the the best thing. The best way I explain to people when they ask me, like, so what's your opinion on why did he post this or or should I do this? I'd be like, look, man, if you feel if you have to ask that question to yourself before you post it, is already you already answered your question. I think so. That's the best way of looking at it. Yeah. And some guys in recent memory, Trey Turner of the Nationals. They've tweeted out this offensive stuff, and now they're looking bad, but they tweeted it out when they were 18 or 19. So I want to ask you, I mean, what is it? what do you think are the repercussions or should be the repercussions for these guys that tweeted this out when they were still rather immature? Mm-hmm. And they were adults, obviously, but still youthful adults. I mean, how much do we blame them for what they tweeted out back then? There's so many ways you can say this. I mean, some people try to say that, um, you know, I, for one, the thing that always gets under my skin is like, like why? Are you, why does it matter what he tweeted when he was sixteen? I mean, he was sixteen. You know, I mean, I'm pretty sure he tried to be. He was probably a normal. He tried to be a normal kid. Obviously, it's not okay. Mm-hmm. But you, I mean, everything shouldn't be held over someone's head. Like it's. I mean, everybody makes mistakes. But my whole thing, my whole entire career, or my whole upbringing in basketball with Twitter and stuff, I just tried to stay as clean as possible. I think the best way to be is just. You know, low key. That's why athletes can understand, you know, and comment on reactions because you're taught, look, you can be in the, the highest of high moments and the lowest of low moments. You got to be even keeled to play a solid 40 minutes of basketball or 48 in the professional game. And that's why what, what I think athletes recognize is that we're overreacting to a lot of things. And that's what's happening is that the reactions are so strong and so, um, so divisive because a lot of people want punishment. Like we have to also remember people are human. They make mistakes. They say and do things at young, at young ages. And it's not to make excuses. You're not supposed to type dumb things or at least not go back and look at it and erase it. But then you got to go, look, we have to be a forgiving society. We have to look at people and go, you know what? They made a mistake. You hope. And you ask the next question, which is how are you acting now? How, who do you hang out with now? How are you treating people now? And if, if, if you can grow, I do believe that you can even write nasty things on the internet back in the day five years ago. But if you maybe went to therapy or you, you learned and grew and you surround yourself with good people, we got to also add one other layer to the evaluation. 
How are people acting now? Well, there are trolls. You can't react to everything. That is true, especially for athletes like yourself. Mm -hmm. I bet when you were at Michigan, you had Ohio State people, Michigan State people coming at you, right? Mm -hmm. And even if you had a big, bad game at Michigan, guess what? You of them fans will come at you and say, you played horrible, right? Mm -hmm. Or say something even more offensive. And, And you can't react to all of that. But you had said, when somebody's 16, okay, we let them slide. But really, I want to ask you, what is the age cutoff? And I can ask John, tell me, what's the age cutoff when you stop making excuses for this guy or this woman for tweeting out something offensive? Because for me, I, I think you can make the argument that at 18, you should know better. Yeah. What do you think, Derek? I agree. I, I mean, I think at some point, like he said, uh, I mean, there's an a age where it's, it's considered not knowing. Right. But I mean, at some point, you do know, and then you should, from that point, once I mean, if you're already offended and then you're, you know, you're already under this microscope, I think microscope, I think it's already, I think it's best to just, you know, just stay out of the way. But the people, the, the things that I do, the only thing I do have problems with that I really wouldn't, I, obviously I wouldn't respond to. I think the people that get on Twitter and, and hide behind like the Internet to troll people, I think it's the I think it's the corniest thing ever. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's the corniest thing ever. But on the flip side of things, I think. People are like so like with Twitter being what Twitter is, people are so like power driven, like they feel so empowered when they can say something and they do get a reaction that it just won't ever stop. Like it just is. It, I mean, the stuff I see. Uh, oh, it's got to be filthy at times, right? Yeah. It's crazy. But it's like, I mean, it is what it is. Man. It comes with the territory. But these people are pitiful. Then they think they're tough behind their keyboard or behind their mobile device. Once again, you're a real tough. You're the real tough guy. And maybe I, maybe Doc is. I mean, we don't respond to all that stuff. You gotta, you know, you you take some of it in, and you don't react to everything. And I mean, answer the question too, Doc. I had asked Derek about what exactly. age do you think is a cutoff for somebody where you have to stop I, making a excuses. A little bit older, for them. you know, twenty one, twenty two. Because really, twenty one, twenty two. Yeah, a little bit older because the brain's still developing. You still got things going on in terms of life experiences and ignorance and stuff like that. So you got to, you know, basically be done with college, kind of have that experience of, hey, kind of seeing different people and getting to know different people. Because a lot of people, if you kind of pay attention to it, live a sheltered life a little bit. And it's hard sometimes to break away from maybe old beliefs that are toxic when you get into college and things like that because you still have to deal with your family and stuff like that. You got to get out on your own a little bit to see, hey, just treat people how you got to be treated. And for me, I definitely, you know, if you started looking at what I was writing at 21, 22, Derek wouldn't uh, be I imagine he'd be like, "What? What's he talking about? Michigan athletes that way?" Because I'm, you know, Derek. I have to admit, I'm a Spartan. But he went to state, unfortunately. But it's okay. It's okay. Sorry, Derek. It's okay. You know what? <laughs> we welcome the the best part about um, doing this with Vito is Vito brings the uh, the proper perspective. And look, I put a Michigan hat in front of you. It's okay. To make we you welcome. look good. Yeah. Okay. We won't talk trash till you leave. Come on, man. No, it's all good. No, I want to definitely also ask you, Derek. What's the state of your game like right now? What are you working on uh, in the summer? How's your workout routines day to day to improve your game? Where's your game at, my friend? I think this past summer I came off. I think my whole entire game is predicated off of being like I want to be in the best shape possible. Yeah. I feel like the things that I bring to the game are like just I feel like they're second nature. Okay. But like I feel like if I'm like in the best shape possible that gives me, you know, I can be able to do those things for a longer span of time. But like obviously I'm doing everything to just, you know, continue to grow. Just, you know, being able to score in a lot of different ways. Uh shoot the ball like I'm accustomed to. Um, be a lot, you know, better on the defensive end it's just, and, and being stronger. So it's like, I wouldn't say I've, I want to master everything, but I'm, all, I'm okay with making, you know, small strides 
And a lot of coaches are rough on point guards because you got to run the offense. You got to mm-hmm. know not only where the defense is looking, but you got to run the offense. Mm-hmm. And so, how do you feel like in terms of you know what you picked up from the Miami offense and also in the G League? How do you feel about running an offense and what maybe one or two areas do you still got to get a little bit better at? I've been playing pick and roll basketball my entire life, so that's always been so easy for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's just always just just trying to learn. Like I think with the way that I ran my college offense and how complicated it was. I think anything that I'm, that's thrown at me at this point just seems just so like uh, like just basic math, you know. So like, I feel like just always continuing to to watch and study is always going to be my niche. But um, I've always felt comfortable running any type of offense. Like if if I had the ball in my hands, right, you'd give me a basic game plan, and at the end, all you tell me to do is make sure I'm winning. At the end of the game, I'll make sure I do that. Back to MSU and Ohio State. Now, you had to deal with a lot of stupidity being spewed from Spartan fans like Doc over the years. I know that on Twitter. (laughs) Trolls, ignorant people like that. How about the rivalries? When it came down to game day against Sparty, against Ohio State, which I have numbers here. You were 3-5 and against Sparty, 3-3 and against Ohio State. What were those rivalry games like? And did you get up more for those games? I love the Michigan State game. I didn't want to play in the Michigan State game unless it was in East Lansing. Like, I didn't want – like, it just wouldn't feel the same. Like, the very last time I played, like, the most vivid memory I have at the Breslin, I will never forget it. My freshman year, I think I was one of the first dudes on the court. I was always trying to be one of the first dudes on the court to, like, just pregame shoot. And I just couldn't, I couldn't describe how anxious I was for the game to start. Like, it was, and I just felt everybody, like, chanting at me. Because, I I mean, Michigan State recruited me pretty hard, like, my last year. Um, But it just... Those games, man, you can't put them in words. Like once you in the rivalry, it's like those games. I wouldn't say you look forward to them, but once they there, oh yeah, you know what time it is. You're revved up big oh, time. Yeah. And which fans were worse to deal with, oh, OSU yeah. or MSU fans? And especially at their respective home arenas, too. Ohio State fans are ten times nastier. Now, why is that? And what are some examples of some heckling that you can share with us from those Buckeyes fans then? I don't know how they got my Snapchat my my freshman year. Wow. I don't know how they got Whoa, it. In, really? Like, oh, to that had, level? Yeah. I had like 260 Snapchats, like game day, and it was Just nasty was, stuff, ooh. right? Left and right, I bet. <laughs> oh, my goodness. It was bad. Can you imagine that? See, Doc would be responding to everything, too. <laughs> yeah. Doc would just get obliterated oh. and react to everything and riled up. And that's really the difference once again. And we're not just I'm not just saying it because you're in here right now in studio with us, Derek, but mm-hmm. I think that's the difference between somebody that's really tough and can deal with things mm-hmm. and then somebody that's tough behind Twitter. Oh, yeah. You know, a guy like you that can see all that, not overreact to it, and you let your play talk for yourself, right? You let the play talk for you. And, and you went out there and got it done most of the time, and... And that's uh, who you are and what you're known for, I think. Uh, you were definitely throughout your Michigan career. And, uh, Doc, you have something else there, I see, huh? Yeah, in terms of your preparation, we're talking about your game and, and trying to get better, and hopefully you get a, a spot on a squad real soon. Take us through uh, a regular 16-hour day from the time you wake up to the time you go to bed. What's a, um, what's a typical day looking like for you when you're training, especially in the offseason? Two-a-days, um, one-a-day workouts, how much time are you spending in the gym? I'm probably, I'm probably at it three times a day. Three times a day, yeah, nice. Yeah, three, three times a day. In some way, shape, or form, and then because every time, every every day can't be extremely hard. Like it's just, you know, you're human. But like I, I would definitely, I wake up, I probably get a couple miles in, easily. Yeah, definitely. I like I just came back. I just got from running. Um, from there I go shoot. Um, and from there lunch probably go midday, 
And then it's always a late night session where it's just filled with like just just skill stuff, like just one on one with my my friends, like close close friends, other players, other pros. It's just man, the like the these are the best times of the year for me. Like everybody loves the games and all the the glamour of that. Like I love the summers, like the summers. Just working out one on ones. Just like being able to go into a gym at seven p.m. at night with a whole bunch of your homeboys and anytime you want and your buddies, huh? Yeah, and walking out of there like. Well, all right, see y'all tomorrow. I love it. So when you're chilling, when you're relaxing, what are you doing for fun other than basketball, by the way? Oh, man. I, I got to get a hobby. <laughs> I don't have a hobby. It's pretty much strictly basketball, huh? Yeah, 24-7. Yeah, but I, I mean, I'm, I watch, I, I, I don't think I'll, the last time I watched, like, just television. I have a show that I watch, but, like, other than that, man, I I tried to get into Fortnite. Uh, I'm not really that good. Um, My player's not that good on 2K, so I need to talk to Ronnie. <laughs> uh huh. I mean, it's just a lot of different oh, stuff. Okay, we got to ask: Did you partake in a little bit of the Miami nightlife? Did you get dabble a little bit, see what's going on down there, Miami? Look, we don't have to go into detail, but uh, Vito, you know, Vito, I've been there myself. We, There's a lot to do. I'll just say that. When Vito, I know you know that much yourself. When Vito goes to Fountain Blue, they just go, okay, they just uh, unhook the rope and let him right in. Dang, Vito. I wish. No, not that good. <laughs> Come on, I wish. I think Dwayne Wade and only a couple of other individuals get that kind of treatment, right? Uh, yeah. So, um, Miami's nice. Yeah. I would say Miami is a great city. Yeah, I'm. A, I'm. A, I just leave it at that. You're gonna leave it at that. You don't want to <laughs> describe the experiences and everything, but a lot of nightlife, obviously, and we can leave it at that. Now, a guy going to Michigan mm-hmm. is David DeJulius from Detroit East English. Great oh, yeah. point guard. We had him in studio here on a past episode of Two Bad Hombres. Really? Yeah. So, what do you think about him and how good of a player he'll be at Michigan? It's so crazy how stuff always turns out, man. It's just like I remember because I was the exact same way when I was younger, like. When I would go, my dad would, like, I've always been around, like, professionals. Like, you know, in every sense of the word, like, in every way around. Like, my dad always surrounded me by him. And I remember meeting him for, like, I've always seen him around. And I think I vividly remember seeing him, like, my junior year, I had a game, right? I had, like, a high school game, and I remember seeing him. And his dad and my dad were close, of course. And then they were just like, yeah, that's the, you know, he's going to be the next, the next dude out of Detroit and I was like okay I mean it's like I'm, I'm getting ready for a game I'm not really I'm just trying to be you know cordial and then uh, over time over time we cordially talk and then to see where he is now you know I'm happy for him but he's an animal <laughs> he's very good and he's undersized you know referred to as yeah. undersized like I know you have been mm-hmm. 5'10 maybe 6 feet tall but he's an animal he's a bulldog that can score too and he did it all of last season unfortunately they got bounced in the first round of the state playoffs and that was sad to see from Dave but he had a great campaign and kind of, he didn't come out of nowhere, but he really put on a show and I think he brought a lot of credibility to his name by having a great senior campaign at East English too. Yeah. I, I, I text him. I tried to get to one of his game. I was so mad when he told me they lost. That was crazy. Mm. But yeah, he's, uh, I've always, I've, I like, I try to follow as many, I keep up with what's going on here when I'm not here. Um, but I always saw highlight tapes. Like I see him and he was always working. Like I've, I admire how hard he works. So Dave DeJulius, the next Derek Walton Jr., perhaps. We will see in Ann Arbor coming up this season. Now, about you again, what's one unique thing about you that many people do not know? I just enjoy people. I think that's, I think I enjoy people. I enjoy alone time, but like, I just enjoy people. All right, let's get to know Derek Walton a little bit further. Are you a Pepsi guy or a Coke guy? Neither. I can't drink pop. No soda. No soda. I like hearing that. Doc still drinks. He's on a diet, and he still consumes uh, Pepsi. Okay. I don't get it. Steak or chicken? I have to go chicken. No doubt about it. What kind of chicken, by the way, now? Baked. Baked. Okay. I have to. 
What's the last movie that you saw in the theater? Oh, I just went to see The Purge too. Mm-hmm. How'd you okay. like it? I just I, I liked it. I want to see The Equalizer, but I you know some other stuff that I I'm not gonna say on here. But like yeah, I need to I need to get more movie. I need to get more movies. But okay. that's the last movie I saw. Jordan or LeBron? Who is the preeminent number one goat oh. NBA? It's a debate. We all have it. We've all had people in here talking about it. Is it Michael Jordan, LeBron James? I try to I try to deflect the question always, but I'll answer today. My my initial like commercial answer would be you just gotta let two people be great. But I will say this. Um after seeing LeBron in person, I'm like I was like, I mean, there's no reason that anybody should def- like debate how good this dude is. Like this this dude is six nine, like nobody knows how much he weighs. Not a know. freight train, right? Yeah, when he drives to the lane. Scary. And but like not only is he physically gifted and like he works at it, but he's like super smart. Like he's one of the smartest dudes out there. Or like he's one of the dudes that mess up on defense because he thought something you he thought you something that you should have thought. Like uh-huh. that's how far ahead of he is. Like it's scary how good he is. So he's the best player that you've played against so far in the NBA. Oh, not even close. Now, how about a guy that you would love to play alongside? Is that the same answer than LeBron James? Have you uh, got the chance to a guy that's currently in the league that you would love to play alongside? See, then I would have to say I, would, I like guys like I like athletic dudes. I like like bigs. I would say dudes like Anthony Davis. I like those type of dudes because LeBron would take the ball out of my hands. <laughs> he would. He definitely <laughs> would. LeBron would take the ball he out might my find hands. you for an open look though too. Like the Lakers are saying, should benefit from that KCP, Mo, mm-hmm. and guys like that. But we'll see if that actually uh, does occur too. Now, how about you with the Pistons? Now, would you love to play for them, your hometown Pistons, one day if you had the opportunity to do so? I would love it. I would love it for the sense of the fact that if it it would have felt like Michigan again. I love it. I would I would love it for that fact. And I mean, I'm so cust- I'm accustomed to being here. I feel like and then it's a lot of stuff that I would want to do here. Like as far as like charities, it just it's just a lot of stuff that I would want to do here and I think being here would make it a lot easier for me. Super teams. Thumbs up, thumbs down. Players joining forces together to, you know, with the common goal of trying to win an NBA title. Some people will say this is great, ratings are up. Others will say it's kind of making the league a little bit boring in that we kind of know who's going to be in the finals in 2018-2019. Super teams, you down for it? Hmm. My stand on super teams is this. I, I think everybody has the freedom and right to go wherever they choose. And now that is that's how that's what I say about that. But I do what I do think is actually doing to the game is just making everybody else work harder. I think that's what it's doing. I think people are going to be so obsessed with trying to match that, that eventually that it'll level out, and then you have to find another way. But I think the way is how lopsided it was this past season, I think it will never be that lopsided again, just because of how hard and how obsessed people are becoming with, like, beating. And Golden State's so loaded now, adding to Marcus Cousins in the mid-level exception, and some people are saying... That's unfair. They don't want to see that happen ever again, but it has in Golden State, definitely. And to steal one of yours, of getting to know you know people mm-hmm. that we have inside the studio here at the DSP Network, yeah. American or Lafayette, Coney Island? I know Doc loves ans- or asking that one. He might have uh, been thinking of asking of that one, too. But, John, I'm, I'm east side. I'm from all the way east Detroit. Like have you, so, I mean, have you tried both before American and Lafayette? Uh-uh. No, so you haven't even. So there goes that question, Doc. Like uh, that was a the, question yeah. Doc has asked before. Yeah, I like to go to the Coney Islands, like near my hometown, where like yep. I know the food. Yeah. So what do you have over there? National. Ooh, we got national. Leo's it's a, maybe. It's a place called Papa's Coney Island. That's like mm-hmm. right on, right down the street from my high school. That if, if I do decide to eat some bad food, that's definitely that's it. Papa's. That's, that's where you're going. Okay. 
And let's let you now pitch your camp coming up. August 6th or 8th, the Derek Walton Basketball Skills Camp, the first annual one, happening at the school where your father coaches currently at Lakeshore High School, right? So uh, tell us all about it and what it exactly will entail. Oh, man. You know what's crazy? This idea came out of nowhere. Like, I was sitting on my balcony in Miami about uh, two, three months ago in May. And I'm like, man, I get to go home for a couple, couple weeks. What's something, you know, what is something that I can keep me going? Like, what is something that I enjoyed around this time when I was younger? I was like... A camp. It was no brainer. Cause I remember being a kid at camp. Like no, there's no other way you can describe having fun like that than that camp. Like just being like, I'm pretty sure a lot of kids that's gonna come gonna be with their like AU teammates or like guys that they're always with. And you just, I just want to give them the best possible. Like not only is it gonna be fun, I wanted to, I want to teach them the right way of stuff. Like my trainer was gonna be like kind of running the guy Jermaine Jackson's gonna like okay. run the camp. My dad's gonna be a part of the camp. But like just to give logistics, uh. August sixth to eighth. Um, the time I think the time will change, but it's right now it's ten to two. Um, ages seven through fifteen, boys and girls are included. Like I'm all about. I don't want to turn anybody away. I, I that's how I feel about. It. I would not turn anybody away. It's a fee to get in, and then if 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 things come up where it can't be met, but the kid is there, like we gonna make adjustments. That's because that's just I feel like that's what it's about. Like I just I'm all about giving and. Just having, making sure somebody, like, all those kids just have a good time. Are kids still able to sign up, too? And if so, how can they sign up? Um, it's a link on Twitter. That's on my Twitter, at Derek Walton 10. Uh, and the link on my Instagram, DW10 underscore. It's the link. And then, of course, man, if you don't want to pay that way, we have figured it out there. That's yeah, you'll make it happen, really, oh, for anybody 100%. that's coming so they can yeah. play. And with that being said, I'll leave you with this. What's your earliest memory of playing basketball? Making you really think here. I know that. My earliest? I think one of the things that I always enjoyed when I was a kid about playing basketball was even in grade school and right before grade school, like knowing that as soon as I get out of school that my dad's picking up, picking me up and I'm going to the gym. Like there's nothing else. I don't have nothing else going on. Like it don't matter how tired I am. It don't matter if I'm hungry. We'll figure that out. But like once I get in the car, I'm all smiles because me, I'm going to the gym. School and then basketball. What? And That's for John good. and I, That's it's a good day. being at home and then coming to the Podcast Network studio to record an episode of Two Bad Hombres. And our special guest this week has been Derek Walton Jr. Derek, great stuff, man. Thank you much, and best of luck the rest of the way for you and your NBA career. I appreciate you guys for having me. Awesome stuff. And thanks to Doc as well. Adios, guys. It's me.